James chapter 3 this morning is where we're going to be. Um, sometime after 2.30 p.m. on November 30th, 1984, 13-year-old Candace Dirksen left school in Winnipeg and headed home on foot. Her mother uh, couldn't pick her up because she had two younger brothers at home uh, that needed to be cared for, and her dad was going to be getting off of work in a, in a time where it just made it impossible for mom to go get Candace from school and then still go and get dad from work and, and, and the boys be properly cared for and not have to spend two hours in the car. Um, her mother was already concerned when Candace hadn't shown up by four but she bundled up the two younger brothers and made the trip to go pick up dad from work, assuming that Candace had been somehow delayed. When Candace still hadn't come home by the time everyone returned from retrieving dad, they called the police. Candace's mother and father, Wilma and Cliff, with police assembled a search, but no trace of Candace was discovered even after six weeks. For six and a half weeks, Wilma would later say, <clears throat> we didn't know what had happened to Candace. She just disappeared into thin air. But everyone knows that when a 13-year-old girl goes missing, then something is terribly wrong. On January 17, 1985, six and a half weeks after she disappeared, Candace's remains were found bound in a shed. It was determined that Candace had been abducted, tied up, and ultimately frozen to death. The day that her remains were discovered, family and friends gathered together at the Dirksons' home to support and comfort them. And as evening drew near and everybody had departed, <clears throat> there was a knock at the door and a strange man stood there. Hello, he said. I am the father of a murdered child also. And I want to tell you what the rest of your life is going to be like. They invited him in and sat down at the table. And for two hours, the man told them in vivid detail everything that he had lost. His health, his marriage, his relationships, his ability to work, and even his memory of his daughter. Because all he could think about was her murder, the trauma, and the hate which followed. Cliff and Wilma went to bed that night, horrified by the graphic picture that this man had presented. Having just been through the pain of losing their child, it now seemed as though they might lose everything else as well. So they resolved there that night that this man's visit would not be a glimpse into their own future, but a warning about what their lives could become. <clears throat> it was this visitor, his story, and a restless night for Cliff and Wilma, which led to Wilma's statement at the press conference the following day, when asked by a reporter how they felt about the person who had done this to Candace, Wilma responded, We hope to find Candace's killer so that we may share a love that seems to be missing from this person's life. 
we have all done something dreadful or wanted to. What would follow that statement would be 22 years of never meeting Candace's murder. Wilma writes, in hindsight, I don't think we had any idea what forgiveness looked like in the face of murder. But our state of mind at the time was such that we knew we had to say no to anger and obsession. We determined to resist anything that would keep us in a state of emotional bondage, both for our sake and the sake of our other two children. She goes on. Little did I know that the word forgiveness would haunt me for the next 30 years, prod me, guide me, heal me, label me, enlighten me, imprison me, free me, and in the end, define me. I was right out there in public, confessing to everyone the desire of my heart. When I joined Family Survivors of Homicide, I was quite forcibly told to forget about using the word forgiveness because they could only see the dangers of forgiving. In some ways, that was good for me because as a Mennonite Christian, I had to lose the religious lingo and it forced me to be more authentic. Forgiveness is a hard word. It demands a lot of you and is so often misunderstood. But I think that Wilma understood this word better than many of us even before the ensuing 22 years where her daughter's killer was never found, before in 2007 when police reopened the investigation and utilized new DNA technology to link Candace to a man who lived nearby the Durkins. I think Wilma understood forgiveness better than many of us before that man was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole on February 18th, 2011. I think before that conviction, before the corresponding sentence to prison was overturned on October 18th, 2017, and that man was set free because there was not enough evidence to convict him of Candace's murder. I think before the Dirksons didn't know and then did know and then weren't sure if they knew anymore who had murdered their daughter, Wilma said something which proves she did understand forgiveness, and it was this. We have all done something dreadful or wanted to. James 3, 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Um, James begins this part of his letter with an invitation for all the wise folks to assemble themselves. Um, This makes me suspect that he's still, at least in measure, addressing those who fancy themselves as teachers. Folks who think of themselves as capable of and gifted to teach need to make sure they know what wisdom is and what wisdom is not. Amen? The danger, evidently, exists of wrongly assessing wisdom. 
which means that there is a possibility that any of us at any time could wrongly be assessing wisdom, which means all of us, whether we fancy ourselves teachers or not, should pay attention. If I invite all the wise people in this room to gather in the front row and then wait patiently for you know, everybody that's going to get up and move to a new seat to do so, I'm guessing nobody would get up and move because we're, we're too humble for that, or at least not so bold as to proclaim out loud to everybody that we think we should seat ourselves in the wise section. So <clears throat> James's question, who among you is wise and understanding, that's a rhetorical question. And he's not going to expect them to write back with an answer. But his definition of who is wise and understanding is not rhetorical, and he's going to help us properly evaluate ourselves, whether we are bold enough to proclaim ourselves as wise publicly or not. So we have nine things here which wisdom is, and we have nine things which wisdom is not, or some other corrupted variety of wisdom is. And a picture emerges here, which we're going to take note of. A picture of something else emerges here, too, which we are going to take heed of. Nine things by which wisdom is known. <clears throat> Good behavior. Gentleness, which is repeated in 13 and 17. So that one gets double, but I'm only counting it as one. Pure, peaceable, reasonable, full of mercy, full of good fruit, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. Those are our nine. Nine things by which wisdom is not known, or some corrupted variety of wisdom is known. Jealousy, repeated in verses 14 and 16. Selfish ambition, also repeated in 14 and 16. That's two. Arrogance, lies, earthly, natural, demonic, disorder, and every evil thing. That's nine. Let's suppose for a moment you have a gift. <clears throat> Professorial type of gift. An inward gift. I'm not talking about something you can hold in your hand. All right? You have a gift for detecting when other people are failures. You are uniquely gifted to sense when somebody is dishonest, when someone is lazy, when someone is selfish, when someone is a procrastinator, you can sense when someone says they will do something, but they're actually not going to do it. You just have this uncanny ability to properly identify and accurately identify whatever is wrong with other people. Imagine that for just a moment, that you have that gift. By observing someone for a little while, you're able to predict what their failures and insufficiencies will be. It's hard, I know, to imagine that. What might a person with such a gift, what might they do with it? What would you do with that gift at school when you're, when you're watching the students around you at school and you see them lying, you see them pretending, you see them sinning, you see them being stupid, what would you do with that gift? Or what would you do with that gift at work when you're doing at least twice as much as everybody else there? What would you do with that gift? What might you do with that gift at home when your spouse lets you do all the chores while they kick their feet up? 
What would the gift of knowing what's wrong with everybody else do for you at home when you're doing more than your spouse? What would you do with that gift when your siblings don't lift a finger to help mom and dad, but you are constantly helping mom and dad? What would you do with that gift? What would you do with that gift when evaluating your child's husband or wife? What would you do with that gift when evaluating your spouse's mother or father? Once upon a time, two men went to church. One man worked for the corrupt government and the other was a seminary professor. Mike, the man who worked for the government, covered up government atrocities, cheated on his wife, ignored his children, lived large off of his government paycheck and drove a beamer to church every Sunday. Hector, who was a seminary professor and taught ethics and soteriology, was a faithful husband, loved his children, paid his bills on time, but was barely scraping by and drove to church in a Toyota rattle trap every Sunday morning. Both men spent some time praying during worship. The seminary professor just happened while he was praying to just, his eyes just happened to glance over and see Mike standing there praying. And here's what Hector prayed as his heart filled with frustration. Lord, he prayed, I thank you that you have preserved me from a life of evil. I thank you that I'm faithful with my finances. I love my wife and children. And while we don't have much, at least I have a clear conscience, unlike Mike over there who lives by ripping off the American taxpayer. Meanwhile, Mike, whose BMW keys were laying on top of his Bible in the seat next to him, glanced at no one and prayed thus, Lord, Be merciful to me, the sinner. Hector was right about Mike. He's right. He's absolutely right. But Hector, Hector's more right than we ever could have been because unlike us, Hector has a gift for spotting what's wrong with other people. We can't really fully imagine what that might be like. But when Nathan confronts David, in 2 Samuel 12, he paints a pretty vivid picture for David. Here's what he says. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. Get the picture in your head. Rich guy, lots of land, lots of flocks and herds. Why are groups of sheep called flocks? Aren't they herds? They don't fly. It just occurred to me. Does he have flocks of birds? Anyway, the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up. It grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. It's weird, but... Now, there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb. He stole it. And he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. 
for stealing, killing, and eating a sheep, right? And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no pity. David, like Hector, has a gift for spotting what's evil in the heart of the rich man and even went so far as to pronounce judgment. So David and Hector have this gift in common. In David's case, his, his, the, like the source of his gift of discernment is a little bit more obvious because Nathan's story is woven very cleverly to kind of ensnare David, right? The poor man in Nathan's story was Uriah. The little lamb was Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. The traveler who visited the rich man was David's lust. And the slaughter and consumption of the lamb represented David's sin. So we see, as the readers of, of, of David's story, and, and we kind of cringe while David's judging the evil, wicked, ruthless, horrible, dishonorable rich man, because we know that he's... Like he's talking about himself, he just doesn't realize it. So the source in David's case of his vast discernment is a little more obvious to us because it's David. David is the sort, because David knows just what's in the heart of somebody who might do something like that rich man did. Because David has done the same thing. Hector, the seminary professor case, his source is not so obvious, but his prayer reveals something equally interesting. Hector <clears throat> doesn't need mercy. Hector thinks compared to Mike, he's doing just fine. The reality in either case is the same. David, king of Israel, and Hector, the Pharisee from Luke 18, in case you're not sure, rise up in judgment of their neighbors because they had lost sight of an important thing. We have all done something dreadful or wanted to. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Three things, real quick. Wisdom is shown by gentleness and meekness rather than by arrogant anger. Second, wisdom is shown by good conduct rather than by selfish ambition. Third, wisdom is shown by works rather than mere words, which may be false. The words may be false. Fourteen, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast or lie and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder at every vile practice. So, Earthly, natural, unspiritual, demonic. Those are the traits of selfish ambition and jealousy. But it apparently, when you're, when you're rolling like that with selfish ambition and jealousy, apparently it has some of the same smell and flavor as wisdom. For James says, this is not the wisdom which comes down from above. It's something else. Does it sound like wisdom? Yes. Ye yes. To us, it does. Uh, the Pharisee's prayer is one that most of us have prayed. David's judgmental tirade is one that most of us have been on. I would venture to say already in 2023. Right? We were just exercising our gift, though. 
unless you are driven to acts of gentleness and mercy by your discovery, there is nothing gifted about finding things wrong with other people. Unless you're driven to acts of mercy by your discovery, there's nothing gifted about finding things wrong with other people. Do you hear me? Unless you're moved to meekness and pity by your discovery, there is apparently no spiritual wisdom required in the discovery of other people's failings. Let me say that again. There is apparently no spiritual wisdom involved in discovering others' failings if your discovery doesn't move you to mercy. Okay, so the wisdom of spotting someone else's sin for your own satisfaction is then earthly, natural, and demonic wisdom. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. Keep going, keep going. If you see Romans, you need to go the other way. First Corinthians 2, verse 6. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is important. So there's a wisdom that the rulers of culture in Paul's time writing Corinthians He says, there's a wisdom they don't have and haven't had. Because if they had had this wisdom, they they would not have crucified Jesus Christ. And why did they crucify Jesus Christ? Think about that question for just a moment. Why did they crucify Jesus? Not God's eternal plan answer. I'm not looking for your uh, theologically astute uh, Old Testament history, um, you know, Old Covenant, New Covenant definition of why Jesus Christ was crucified. What I'm looking for is what was the human motive for killing Jesus? Wasn't it that they found something wrong with him? Yeah, he's a blasphemer. This man makes himself equal with God. Humans, in their wisdom, found something wrong with Jesus Christ. Which gives us a little glimpse at what that demonic, earthly, natural wisdom is capable of doing. I am not surprised at my own capacity to find things wrong with you because my Bible just told me, had I been on the earth 2,000 years ago, I could have found something wrong with Jesus. And did not Pilate, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times declare, I don't find any guilt in this man. So simultaneously, human beings went, yep, he's a blasphemer, and nope, he hasn't done anything deserving death. That's what earthly wisdom did. Look at verse 10, still in 1 Corinthians 2. 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts? I do. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? Oh, we don't know one another's hearts. We don't. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So unspiritual, natural wisdom cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are not reasonable to him. That's what folly means. Not reasonable. So could it be that godly wisdom is folly to the natural because primarily godly wisdom does not drive you to glorify yourself? I really think if I'm not on the mark, I'm very close to it having debated it for no insignificant amount of time. What is it about godly wisdom that is so foolish to the lost and dying? Look at 2 Thessalonians 2. Second Thessalonians 2. Remember, unspiritual, natural wisdom cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, remember, 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 2, what we said was unnatural sorry, natural, unspiritual wisdom cannot accept the things which come from the Spirit of God. It's folly. Here, wicked deception, refusal to understand and agree and love the truth, and the, the following delusion sent by God is demonic. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false because they had no pleasure 
in righteousness. This is demonic wisdom. I mean, the low-hanging fruit is how many genders are there, right? That's the low-hanging fruit. We're getting dumber as a culture. And it's not a joke. It's not funny. It's like if you love Jesus and you believe what's right and true, and you look at a culture which has upended all of that and said, the only thing that's true is however I feel in a given moment, it's maddening. You can't make sense of it, but they look at us and think the same thing. How could you be such a bigot? That is not a woman. That is now a man. And you will say it out loud with your mouth. Say it's a man. It's not a man. You bigot. And they're going to lock us up eventually for this. It's going to happen. It's demonic wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, then there is disorder and every evil thing. And what is it that you must lose sight of in order to pray like the Pharisee or rage mercilessly against someone else's evil like David? What is it you must lose sight of? What is it that you have to ignore in order to judge someone else with evil motives? What is it you have to lose sight of in order to clap back on somebody who done you wrong? We have all done something dreadful or wanted to. That's what you have to lose sight of. That's what you have to forget. You have to go, not me. I haven't done something dreadful. They're disgusting. But I'm not. You can hear it every time your heart is, is taken with bitterness over someone else's sin against you. You could hear earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. I'm better than them. How dare they? And you can feel it every time you start to populate a list of someone else's transgression. Selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, they're liars, they're cowards, they're duplicitous, they're conniving, they're untrustworthy, they only care about themselves, they're not going to do what's right, they're not as good a friend as I am, they're not as good a teacher as I am, they're not as good a parent as I am, they're not as good as worker as I am, they're not as talented as me, they can just eat whatever they want and they never get fat, it's not that they have discipline and self-control. Selfish ambition and bitterness rises up in us. They don't have as good of a doctrine as I do. It runs the gamut, doesn't it? When you start down this road with somebody, is there anything they're better at than you? Yes, they're better at being terrible. That's it. Use your gift of discernment of everyone else's failures and foibles and you start to sound like a demon. The wisdom from above is first pure. This is 17, James 3. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Oh, that's much different. That is much, much different, isn't it? Purity is first. I know everybody already knows what all these words mean and you don't need me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway just in case you don't. What's purity? Well, purity means untainted, undefiled, unspoiled, uh, 
unmixed, unadulterated. It is just what it is and nothing else. The wisdom from above is first pure. There isn't a little bit of selfish ambition. There isn't just a smidge of bitterness and jealousy. Heavenly wisdom is pure. Then it's peaceable. The goal is not self-advancement. The goal is peace. The goal is not retribution. The goal is peace. The goal is not vengeance. The goal is peace. Pure, peaceable, gentle. Heavenly wisdom, spiritual wisdom is not brash. There is no sword. There is no whip. There is no bullying. There is no toughness. There is gentleness. And if that doesn't go into every father in the room like a hot knife and every pastor who fills a pulpit like a brand, I've lost my temper preaching before. There's no gentleness in that. I think I concealed it, so hopefully you're sitting here going, he has. Yeah, and between my own heart and my own head, the gentleness disappeared because somebody was doing something while I was preaching and I was just like, are you kidding me? Are you going to sit there and do that while I'm preaching? In my own head, the gentleness was gone. If I could have addressed that person privately in a room in that moment, all the restraint would have been removed. How many dads, when the kids, like you've just, I've had enough The gentleness is gone. Guess what else is gone? So is the peacefulness, so is the purity. Then it's open to reason. Heavenly wisdom, spiritual wisdom is not a hard taskmaster. There is no rigid indifference to circumstances in spiritual wisdom. There is no brittle, hard refusal to listen in spiritual wisdom. It's open to reason. That implies inquisitiveness. That implies a willingness to find out more. So if you're so right that you don't need to be curious, it's not heavenly wisdom. Open to reason. Then it's full of mercy and good fruits. So heavenly wisdom by its compassionate pity, does not seek to destroy an enemy. It seeks to win a friend. Full of mercy and good fruits? Does your wisdom look and smell and taste full of mercy and good fruits? Or does it look like something a bit darker? Well, I mean, it's a mixture. Okay, heavenly wisdom's pure. Finally, it is unwavering, impartial, sincere, without hypocrisy. That means it does not speak one way to your face and another way behind your back. It's consistent. Straight. And about now we see a portrait of Jesus painted here, don't we? I'm not wise. 
I am not wise, not by heavenly wisdom's measure. We have all done something dreadful or wanted to. All of us. And there stands Jesus, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And here stands us, earthly, unspiritual, demonic, full of too much jealousy and selfish ambition, perpetrators of disorder and every vile practice, not exclusively those things, but oh, the best of my deeds tainted with those things. If Paul could write in Romans 7 and say, I realize, I who want to do good, realize that evil is present with me always, even in the doing of good. How much more so can we say? I, I am not the uttermost uh, earthly, unspiritual, demonic, full of jealousy and selfish ambition, perpetrator of disorder and every evil practice, but it taints all that I do and all that I say and all that I think. Where then is boasting? When compared with Christ, what am I? When compared with Jesus, what are you? Are we not all people who have done something dreadful or wanted to? Are we not all people who have done something dreadful or wanted to? Let's pray and thank God for forgiveness and resolve to forsake earthly wisdom. I'm going to ask the band to just wait. I'll invite you guys up when I get done.